0: Well, I can still remember Rachel and I's first date. It lasted 18 hours long, and much of that 18 hours was spent communicating back and forth with one another. What are the things that you like the most? What are the things that you like the least? What are you looking for in the rest of your life? How many kids do you want to have? I mean, we had all of those conversations in that first date, Even to the point that whenever that date was over, both of us, I think we knew that this is the person that I want to marry. This is the person that I want to have a relationship with for the rest of my life. Even to the point that whenever I was getting ready to leave, Rachel looked at me and she said, I like you a lot. She was ready to tell me she already loved me. Now, I know that's hard for most of you to to imagine, but um, that's how far it went. And I think that's what Christ wants from us. He wants that passion, that intimacy, and everything that we had. He wants us to, to remember back to whenever we first fell in love with Him, because He loves us with that same kind of love today. And He wants us to love Him with that same kind of passion, with that same kind of heart. And that's what He telling the church at Ephesus, they're busy, they're doing a lot of things for Christ, but yet they're not doing things with Christ. And that's what we're going to see and be able to make application of as we see in Revelation chapter 2, the letter written to the church at Ephesus. So let's begin by getting an outline. We're first going to see a destination and description in chapter 2 verse 1. And this outline that is used here is very similar to to the outlines to all the seven churches. They have many of these same components. But first, we see a destination. It's going to the church at Ephesus, the description of Christ, and we'll talk about that. We see two key things. Then we're gonna see a commendation. What is it that they're doing right? What do they get an attaboy for? Then we're gonna see a rebuke. What is it that they've done? They've left their first love. We'll see that in verse four. Then we're gonna see an exhortation. What is it that they need to do to get right? And then finally, we're going to see the promise that is made to the overcomers in verse 7. Well, the book of Revelation is written by the Apostle John, the same person who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He is the one who is... He has been exiled on the island of Patmos for his stand for Jesus Christ. He stood for Jesus Christ. He was exiled. They thought, man, you get him out here on this, on this island and he can't be used by God. But what happens? Christ appears to him and he tells him to write down some certain things. And what he tells him is found in, in Revelation chapter 1 where he says, write the things that are or the things that you've seen, the things that are, and the things that will be. And so that's what he's writing down. But the things that are right now is the time that we are living in. It's the church age. That's why he's writing to the seven churches. Those are the things that are. And he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus that we can make application from even today. So let's begin by looking at verse 1 as we see the destination and description of Christ. First, we'll see the destination. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? So he says, to the angel, and most of the time whenever we think about angels, we think about heavenly beings, but also there are human beings in the New Testament that are called angels like John the Baptist. He was called an angel. He was the messenger who brought the message that the Lamb of God was here to take away the sin of the world. So the the angel that this is probably referring to is the pastor of the church, the one who brought the message, who would read the message that was given to the church at Ephesus. And so he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And so it's going to a specific church, to the church in Ephesus. It was a church that Paul established. It was a church that he left Timothy to pastor and to oversee. It was a church that was in a city that is one of the greatest cities. Um, and it, had, it was well known for idolatry. It was where one of the seven wonders of the world, world is found, the temple of Artemis. And so all of this paganism was in this city. And so over and over, Paul emphasized to Timothy in his letters to him that you've got to be careful. You've got to stick to sound doctrine. You've got to live out the word of God. And we're going to see that that's what this church did Whenever we see the commendation here in just a minute. But going back to verse 1, we get a description of Christ. It says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. So it goes back to the description found at the end of chapter 1, verse 20, where it says, the seven stars... "...are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So Jesus Christ is talking, and he, there's two key things that we see about Christ. First, we see that He is omnipotent, that He's all-powerful. He's the one who holds the seven stars, the seven angels, the seven pastors in His right hand. He's the one with, who is in control, ultimately, in the church." but also it shows that he's omnipresent as he walks among the seven golden lampstands, as he walks among the church. He cares about the church. He cares about the people in the church. He cares about you and me. He cares about our lives. And even though sometimes we want to walk away from him, sometimes we leave him as our first love, he never allows us to walk alone. Never once did he leave us on our own. He is faithful. God is faithful. And so we have to trust in him. We have to know that he loves us with an everlasting, unconditional love and that he'll never leave us. He cares about us. He's omnipotent. Or he's all-powerful and all-knowing. But also, here in a minute, we're going to see that, you know, not only does he, he know about everything about what we do, our good and our bad that we do, but he cares about the motivation that is found behind our good deeds. So speaking of good deeds, let's look and see what the church at Ephesus was doing good. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. He says in verse 2, "...I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false." You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So Christ starts off in commending them for their deeds, for their works. He says, you're doing good deeds, you're doing well. And you know what? Many people do good deeds, but why do they do good deeds? Why do people do good deeds? Well, I think there are many unbelievers in the world that do good deeds because they think that it's going to get them to God, that it's going to get them to heaven. It's going to get them eternal life. But that's the lie of the devil. You do good and God will love you. But the truth is we can't do good and God already loves us. JB talks about that all the time. So how do we get to God? We don't get to God by our good works. We don't get to God by coming on a cold morning like it is today and coming to church. We don't get to God by reading his word. So how do we get to God? We get to God by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 it says, To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Jesus Christ bore in his body our sins on the cross. In Revelation 1, 17 and 18, it says, as the first and the last, the living one, he says, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I hold the keys of death and Hades in my hand. How can we have eternal life? It's because Jesus Christ has conquered death. He has the power over death and Hades, and anyone who will simply believe in him gets the gift of everlasting life. So it's not what we have done, what we are doing, or what we will do. It's by believing in Jesus Christ that we receive the gift of everlasting life. So if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to give you what he promises, everlasting life, right where you're sitting, you can believe in him, and he offers you that as a gift. That should make, bring joy to your life. It should bring freedom to your life because you're not bound by doing all of these things in order to have everlasting life. But in this letter, who is, he, who is Christ addressing? He's addressing believers. He is talking to the church at Ephesus. So the question becomes, why do believers do good deeds? And I think there are many believers who do good deeds with the wrong motives, with the wrong intentions. There are some believers who put their faith in Jesus Christ and they understand they have everlasting life, but over a period of time they get confused and they become legalistic and they think that they have to do good, they have to be good, they have to read the Bible on a regular basis, they have to do all these things in order to stay saved or else to to make sure that they have what they got, eternal life. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that whenever you believe in Jesus Christ, you get eternal life. And that he holds you just like he holds the pastor, the angel of the seven churches in his hand. He holds each and every one of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ in his hand. In John 10, it says that no one can snatch us out of his hands. The Father who is greater than all, no one is able to snatch him out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are... Are one. So whenever we become legalistic by trying to fulfill the things that the Bible tells us and we're not serving God out of love, we begin to serve God out of fear. But then there's other believers that serve God, that do good deeds. And you ask them, well, why do you do these things? I've talked to people who tell me, yeah, you know, I come to church and I serve on Sunday mornings because man, it just helps my week to go better. So, why do you come to church? Why do you, why do you serve God? Because it's for you? No. Why do we come to church on Sunday mornings? We come to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again for us, the one who loves us with an everlasting, unconditional love. We are to come to worship him, to respond to him in love. We are to come together, together with fellow believers so that we can be in fellowship with one another, so that we can encourage one another and strengthen one another so that whenever we go out there in the community, yes, our life is better, but we don't come To better our lives, we come to worship our Savior Jesus Christ. And then there are people, and I think this may be the thing that the church at Ephesus was doing. They were just so busy. We're going to see here in a minute that it says that not only were they doing good deeds, but they were doing them to the point of exhaustion. And so they were so caught up in the things that they were doing for Christ that they began to forget about doing things with Christ. They were so enamored in doing ministries for God that they no longer had their quiet time. They they no longer took time to pray and spend time with God. So they became very religious rather than dealing and growing their relationship with Christ. So there's many reasons that... Believers do good deeds, but the ultimate reason the, that we're going to see here in verse four in just a few minutes, the proper motivation is love. We are to love God like we did at first. He is to be first priority in our lives. We are to love him as our first love. He goes on in verse three, and as I said, it has the word toil there, and that means working to the point of exhaustion. So, you know, that happens a lot of times in churches that churches just work and they have ministry after ministry trying to do all these things to satisfy many people. But here at Stillwater Bible, we try to purpose all of our ministries to focus on what our purpose is to make disciples. But also inside the church, many times you have individuals who toil to the point of exhaustion because of the 80-20 rule that applies to most everything in life. There's 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And sometimes you say, man, that's great for them. They're doing so much ministry. But the truth is, sometimes we can get so busy doing ministry that we lose out on our time with God. With Christ, spending time alone with him, having our quiet times, getting to study his word because we're busy doing all of our work. So what should we be doing? The whole body, every person in the body is given gifts, talents, and abilities to use within the body, to serve within the body. And so for the body to function as it's supposed to, everybody needs to fulfill their responsibilities. According to Ephesians 4.16, it says, to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So if you're doing so much ministry to the point of exhaustion that you're losing out on your time in fellowship with Christ, look around to the people that just attend on Sunday mornings or that just attend events and Go to them and ask them for help. Ask them to help you serve in your area of ministry. If you're someone who just attends on a a weekly basis, you know, look around to the people that are serving in multiple ministries that are doing multiple things and ask them if you can come in and help them to relieve some of the load. Because when everyone serves based off of their gifts, talents, and abilities, everyone benefits. Everyone grows. The individuals within the church and the church as a whole. Going back to verse two, the next word that he says is perseverance. They're keeping on, keeping on. He emphasizes this in the next verse as well. They're not giving up, they're not burning out, they're pressing on for Christ's sake. He goes on and says that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. So they can't tolerate people who live contrary to the Bible. They can't tolerate people who teach contrary to the Bible. So they're people who are doctrinally sound. They know the Word of God. They get the Word of God. Most of us here at Stillwater Bible are doctrinally sound what do we do? We teach the Bible verse by verse, passage by passage, so that we can understand and know God's Word, so that we can be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us for the hope that is within us. It's something that Paul stressed in his letters to Timothy, that you've got to be doctrinally sound. Look on down to verse 6 as it ties into this as well. It says, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know much about the Nicolaitans, but they seem to be a people whose deeds are not biblical. And according to Revelation 2.15, whose teachings are not biblical. But notice what it says there in verse 6. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We hate the deeds, not the deeders. We hate the sins, but not the sinners. Why? Because God loves all people and he desires to have a relationship with them. He desires for all men to be saved. So just because people are living wrong or they're believing the wrong things, we don't just cast them out. We've got to go to them in love, in grace, in mercy. And lead them to the truth of the gospel that is found in his word. So that they can know what Christ did for them. And how they can have eternal life simply by faith. We have to be ready to make an answer. Ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Yet with gentleness and reverence. Going back to verse 3 again he says their perseverance. He says... And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. During this time, the church at Ephesus was undergoing great persecution. But these people, they stood for Jesus Christ. They persevered even amongst the persecution. So the question is, are we standing for Christ in our spheres of influence? It's easy to stand for Christ whenever we're inside the four walls of this church. But how are we doing whenever we go out into our communities? How how are we doing in our neighborhood, in our place of work, in our family? Are we standing for Christ? Are we willing to share the gospel with people that we know are not believers? That's what the church in Ephesus did. They stood by true and pure doctrine. They were willing to persevere even as they were persecuted. Well, he's been commending them for all these things that they've been doing well. They've been doing deeds. They've been toiling to the point of exhaustion. They've persevered for his name's sake. They are doctrinally sound, but we get a rebuke in verse 4. Look with me at verse 4. He says, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Where is Christ to be in our lives? He is to be first. When Jesus was on this earth, he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. But Christ is to be first place in our life. We are to love him first and foremost. We are to seek him first, Matthew six thirty three. but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. We are to give of our first fruits. So whenever it's time to spend, whenever we get that paycheck every month, what are we to do before we go spend on ourselves, before we go making all of our payments, we are to give to Christ first because his place in our life is to be first. He is also to be first in our family. In Matthew 10, whoever loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So Christ is to be first in our family. He is our heavenly father who loves us, who gave his son for us. So that he could be with us for all eternity. So Christ is to be first in priority, first in our love, first in our seeking, first in our spending, first in our family. He is to be our first love. Why? Because he first loved us. Without him showing us love, we wouldn't even know what love is. So these believers, they were doing great things, but yet they had left their first love, I think these believers seem to be more interested in doing things for God rather than doing things with God. Let me give you an illustration. And guys, I hope this doesn't get us in too much trouble. But you think about your life and the beginning of your relationship husbands and wives just like i said earlier you know you spend a lot of time communicating back and forth with one another you go out on dates but then what happens you get married you the honeymoon is over and you know life happens and Husbands, a lot of times, men, they they get their identity from their work and so they begin to work and they work 40 hours a week and then they want to move up the ladder and so it's 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week. Whenever I come home, I've got to mow the grass, I've got to take out the trash, I've got to do all of these things and the wife comes and says, you know, honey, we just don't spend much time together anymore. You know, why don't we go out on dates? Why don't we communicate like we used to? And you say, well, honey, I'm so busy doing all these things for you that I can't spend time with you. But I think for most wives, and let me say it that way, most wives would rather have more time spent with their husbands rather than their husbands doing things for them. I think many times that they would rather have a healthier relationship than a healthier bank account that wives would rather have a healthier relationship than a healthier yard. I think that's what Christ is telling the church. Don't worry about doing so many things for me and remember to spend time with me. That's why I died and rose again, so that I could be with you, so that I could spend time with you. And that's what he is wanting from his people. The time we spend with Christ is very important to him, and it should be important to us as well. And let me throw this in there. You know, everything that he has commended this church for doing and what he's got onto them is all related to him. He's not even talking about all the worldly things that get into the way. The time on Facebook, the time watching TV, the time going to this event or that event... He's just talking about, man, you're doing so great serving me. You're, you're utilizing all your time for the right things but yet you're doing it with the wrong motivation and for the wrong reasons. So we could talk about all of those other things that the world throws at us that takes up our time from being with Christ, but that's a whole other message. So let's get back to verse 4 and see how he worded this. He says, you left your first love. You see, God didn't move. God didn't change. We did. It goes back to the story of the Bible like J.B. talks about. How the perfect righteous God brings sinful man back to himself using his son, Jesus Christ. You see, God never moved. But man did. Because in the beginning, man and God were in perfect union. They were in a relationship. They were in fellowship. But man sinned and he fell. And so God came up with a plan using his son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile man back to himself. God never moved. The same is true in our fellowship. God never moves, but we move in and out of fellowship. We can never lose our relationship because whenever we believe in him, we get eternal life, an eternal relationship that... begins at the moment we put our faith in him. But we can move out of fellowship. And how do we get back in fellowship? We have Jesus Christ, the righteous, the advocate who goes before us. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we get back into fellowship with him as we confess. So let me give you another illustration, and ladies, it's your turn. Whenever you begin the dating process, and I think a lot of you older people can relate to this better than the younger people, because you all had the bench seat. But what happened whenever you first started dating? Where did that lady sit? She sat right there next to you as you drove the car. She was right there next to you. But what happened over time? the dating process is over, we get married, the honeymoon's over. So now it's a lot more comfortable to be over here in the passenger seat than it is to be right next to you. So I'm going to sit over here now. And so she moves a little farther away. And then a little bit later on, what happens? You have kids. Where do the kids sit? They sit in the back seat. So now where's she at? She's in the back seat. And I think that's that's all good, that she's taking care of her family, that she's comfortable, but not at the expense of moving farther and farther away, not at the expense of losing fellowship with one another. And I think that's what God is saying there. He's saying, I didn't move. I didn't, I'm not the one who, who moved away. It was you. I'm still in the driving, driver's seat. I haven't moved. I still want to see you. I still want to hold your hand. I still want you to talk to me but all you're doing for me and my family has moved you away from me. So what's the solution? He gives the solution and it's a threefold plan found in verse five. It's to remember, repent, and repeat. Look with me at verse five. He says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. Unless you repent. So first we need to remember. Remember what it was like at the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Remember the feelings, the emotion, the the freedom. Because I've talked to many people who were in other denominations. And they felt bound. And man, I have to live a certain lifestyle. And I can't live up to that lifestyle. So I'm giving up on Christianity. I'm giving up on this religion. Religion. And then they hear the truth of the gospel and it's freeing to them. And they are in love with God. They're in love with Jesus Christ. Remember those emotions, those feelings that you had. Then second, he says, repent, which literally means a change of mind. If we truly want to change, we must be changed from the inside out. Like Romans 12, 2 says, we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But I love what Ezra 7, 10 says. It says, for Ezra purposed in his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. It started as he purposed his heart. He had a change from the inside out that began the process of him knowing more about God, of him being more like God, and then him teaching other people about God. It starts as we purpose in our heart. You know, we're at the end of the year. Many people have already made their New Year's resolutions and those New Year's resolutions deal with coming closer and being closer to God. But, but Christ doesn't want to be a New Year's resolution. He wants to be a part of our lives. That's why he died and rose again so that we would be with him. So Ezra purposed in his heart, we need to have a change of mind, a change of heart. We need to repent. And finally, we need to repeat. Simply put, we are to do the things we did at first. What did we do at first? I know for me, I told others about Jesus Christ because, man, what a burden lifted to know that I didn't have to go to church every Sunday. I didn't have to read the Bible. It wasn't based on my doing that gave me eternal life. It was faith alone and Christ alone that gave me eternal life. I wanted other people to know the good news that I had found out about. I also wanted to know about this God who loved me so much that he gave his son to die and rise again in my place. I wanted to know more about this Jesus Christ who is willing to leave the glories of heaven and die on the cross and pay for my sins. So I got in his word. I began to read it. I wanted to know more about him. And then I prayed to God. I wanted him to know about me. I wanted him to know my likes, my dislikes, the things that I did that were good, the things that I did that were bad. Because that's what a healthy relationship is all about. It's about communication. That's what you do when you're in a healthy relationship. You communicate with one another. That's where the passion, the love, and everything comes from. That's what Christ wants from us. He wants to be our first love. So we have to communicate. We have to remember. We have to repent. And we have to repeat. So let's bring back the time of dating. Let's bring back the honeymoon. Let's bring back those emotions and those feelings that we had at first. Christ gave up his life so that he could be with you and with me. Christ is not telling the church to quit doing good. He's not saying, okay, quit all your ministry so you can spend time alone with me. He's not saying that. He's already commended them for the good deeds that they're doing. He's commended them for their toil. He's commended them for their perseverance. He's commended them for being doctrinally sound, for knowing the word. But he wants them to do them the things that they do with him. He says, include me in your day, include me in your work, include me in your play, include me in your family, include me in your ministry. But most importantly, Include time in every day for me and you to get alone, to spend time together. That's what Christ wants from us. If not, what will happen? He'll remove your lampstand out of its place. The church will no longer exist. We'll no longer be a light to the world. We'll no longer be a light to the community. We're set up here on a hill, so we overlook Stillwater, and we are to be a light to this community, giving them The truths that are found in God's word. But if we don't serve God with the right motivation, for the right reasons, if we don't serve him out of love, then there's the possibility of our lampstand being removed. And that's exactly what happened to the church in Ephesus. Now in verse 7, he makes his final statement, it goes back to what I said at the beginning, that he cares about, that he walks among his seven golden lampstands, that he walks among the church. And so this is not for the church as a whole, but this is for each individual who is in the church. And look at what he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who has an ear, let him hear. He's saying, listen up. Christ said this similar statement seven times while he was on the earth during his earthly ministry. And every time it was leading to a change in direction. He wants us to change our direction. He wants us to put him first and foremost in our life. Of all you are here today, listen up to what is being said. Because I have a promise for those who not only listen, but those who heed the words that have been spoken. It goes back to Revelation 1-3, which says, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the word of prophecy, and heed the things that are written in it. The promise here is to him who overcomes, I'll grant to the eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. There's some debate about the overcomers found in the book of Revelation, but I see the overcomers in the book of Revelation not to be for all believers, but for those who not only listen to the words, but who heed the truths that are found in it. People who hear the words and they make application in their lives. In this passage, it's for people who are in fellowship with Christ, who are making Christ their first love, that he is their priority in their life, that they're not getting caught up in all the things they're doing for him, but they're spending time with him. To them, he grants to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. They are Christians who live a life of love, loving Christ first in importance, and as they did it first. So let's make some application this morning. It is my hope and my prayer that all of us who are here today have heard the words that Christ has spoken. And that we not only hear those words, but that we heed the words that are written as we reestablish Christ as our first love. So how are we going to do that? By making application just that he gave a while ago. That we remember. Remember what it was like when you heard that message of love how much he loved you, that he was willing to go to the cross and die for you. We are to remember. Second, we are to repent. We need to have a change of mindset. We need to purpose our heart. Let me tell you, there's many people who are out there today who have a mindset that what I'm going to do for in 2018 is I'm going to get closer to Christ. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow closer to Him. I'm going to make Him my first love. Maybe they're thinking the same things that I'm teaching here today. But man, whenever that alarm clock went off today, and they rolled over and they looked at it, and they saw the date said 2017, they said, man, I don't have to do that yet. That's not the kind of lifestyle. That's not what Christ wants from us. He doesn't want to be our New Year's resolution. He wants to be our first love. And then finally, we need to repeat. Finally, we need to repeat. We need to love him like we did at first. We need to scoot back across that bench seat. We need to take him by the hand and tell him, I la la love you a lot. Communicate with Christ As communication leads to healthy relationship. If we apply his word. Not only will we have the opportunity. To eat from the tree of life. Which is in the paradise of God. But we'll live out heaven on earth. And that's what God desires for our lives. He sent Christ. Not only that we would have life. But that we would have it abundantly. The abundant life that he desires for us. Is not living by doing abundance for him. But spending an abundance of our time with him. Making him our first love.